when I sit down to prepare the sermon in Ecclesiastes, I always find that I'm too more ambitious than I, I can be with the a lot of time I have. And um, this week, there's a lot of text here. I'm actually only going to preach on um, um, verses uh, from chapter 4, which were from last week, and then there's one verse later on. So I'm just going to read that section, which is, goes through the end of chapter 4, and then um, one verse from chapter um, uh, 5. So hear God's word to us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Then I saw all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil, full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw, all, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure this also is vanity and unhappiness. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But, one, but woe to him who, has, who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man may, might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And then if you look in verse 18 of chapter 5, behold what, I have, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, um, we know that you give us um, gifts of work, the gift of relationships. We know that both of these can be um, toil and striving and stress in our lives. This morning, we do pray for wisdom. We pray that you would instruct us in the wisdom this book has to give us about learning what it means to live within our limits when it comes to our work and learning to have the right priorities. Father, wherever we find ourselves today, uh, we pray that you would um, be moving towards us, that you would be um, lifting us up, um, challenging us, encouraging us, and helping us to see Jesus and his work in our life more clearly. And we pray in his name. Amen. A distinguishing mark of living in a modern age is how much personal significance we attach to our work. 
Work has always been important in every culture and in every time, but modern culture in particular has closely linked identity, um, self-expression with career. We learned from grade school that one of the most important ways you express yourself and find meaning and purpose in life is through the, the career or vocational path that you choose. Now, this is more and less true depending on your socioeconomic sort of background, uh, where you live in the country, whether you're in an urban place in a big city or a smaller town, and, and also racial background. I think that makes a big difference. Not everyone invests the same amount of their identity and their work, the same amount of significance. But in our context here <laughs> in particular, which is urban and um, tends to be highly educated, career is front and center. What we do with our lives, our work, um, it's a big deal. And so whether we realize it or not, I think a context like City Reform Church, we have a lot, we put a lot of spiritual pressure upon the kinds of work we do and its meaning. Now, since the beginning of time, all human beings have been tempted to see and to seek more importance and personal value from their work than what their work is able to bear. Uh, think of Cain. Is it, did this not happen to Cain? When Cain brings his offering to the Lord, and the Lord, uh, he rejects it. He, he corrects it. He doesn't say you can't bring it back, but there's, there's a flaw in Cain's work. And it says that Cain's face fell. Cain was devastated. He was so invested in his work, and when God criticized it, he, he did not recover, right? And we know how the story ends. The book of Ecclesiastes offers us, uh, oftentimes you read this book and you get the sense that these are the confessions of a workaholic, right? Uh, uh, let me remind you of what chapter 2 says, what the teacher, when he's talking about when he was king, he says, I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had gone before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered to myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. This is a man who is working constantly at all kinds of projects and tasks. He's incredibly accomplished. He's kind of like the ancient equivalent if you were to roll Steve Jobs and Donald Trump and Warren Buffett into one, right? He has been successful beyond our wildest imagination and dream. But his conclusion is that all the work of my hands that I had done, all the toil that I expended in doing it, behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. I didn't gain any profit, in other words. All the great works left him feeling empty. Now, work is one of the major themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, the word toil it gets repeated over 40 times. The theme, it's really from start to finish of the book. And it would be easy to come away with the feeling that this is a book that has a wholly negative view of work, right? That work, it's terrible. It's, it's cursed. But that, that's not an accurate understanding of what the teacher is thinking. Like, um, 
the teacher everywhere commends to us the joy of work. And like a good Hebrew, whose, whose thinking and thought world is rooted in the Genesis accounts of creation, he knows that work is good, that human beings were created for work. Work is instinctual. We don't even have to, we don't have to be taught to work. We want to work. It's something that is an expression of what it means to be created in the image of God. Work is something that enters the world not uh, after the fall, but before the fall. Remember when God created Adam and he set him in the garden and he created Eve, he put them there to work it and to keep it. To work in the garden was a way that that the first human beings connected with God. It was a way that they worshiped through their work. However, after the fall, everything else in life, including work, falls and is, suffers the curse. Remember what God says to Adam, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. See, the teacher affirms the goodness of work, the joy of work, but he wants us to honestly reckon with the fact that we all work outside the garden. <laughs> There's no garden that we can find to work in. We work east of Eden. All work, no matter how good it is, is affected by the curse. Now, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is, I'll remind you from last week, is learning to live in a world that is permanently out of alignment with ourselves. It's learning how to bring ourselves into alignment with a broken world, and it is really tough to do. Our expectations and our desires from the world never really match what the world is able to give. And that creates frustration. And work in particular is one of those things that easily in our lives gets out of balance and gets distorted. We expect more from our work than it can possibly deliver to us. And it easily becomes an idol in our lives. Idolatry is not really the language that the teacher uses on the surface. He doesn't talk about idols so much. But in listening to the wisdom of the teacher, what he can and in the ways in which he seeks to teach us what it means to live within our limits as creatures, we learn what it means not to turn our work into an idol. I want to remind you of that sacred, or not the sacred reading, but from the confession earlier, from Isaiah 44. Remember the imagery of the carpenter, right? Who, you know, I'll read, I'm going to read it again, because I think this is a very important text. The carpenter stretches out his line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass, he shapes it with the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down the cedars, he chooses a cypress tree, oak, and lets it grow, standing among the trees of the forest. He plants the cedar, and the rain nourishes it, then it becomes fuel for a man. And he takes part of it and warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread. And also he makes a god and he worships it. He makes it an idol, and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, 
his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Again, just put your, your own vocation in there. <laughs> and you could tell a similar story about all the different things and particulars of your work and how it provides food and provides meaning and all the different particularities, but then how easily it is, and then you use part of your work and you make it into a God and you say, deliver me. And it's very natural. You think about it. The thing that you have your hands on all day, it can't help but be, be really important when you have to work hard and you strain and you sweat and there's a lot of pain it's natural to then think, this is the thing that's going to save me, right? I've put so much effort and work into this, it should pay off. But that's precisely what the teacher wants to tell us. It's like the ceaseless toil. I mean, you're looking for a payout it will never bring. See, we're all tempted to turn our work into an idol. It doesn't matter how good your work is or how terrible your work is. It's easy for it to be an idol in our lives. And the teacher comes along and he gives us a lot of very helpful instruction about how not to be an idolater. And so I, there's three things in this text that I want to draw your attention to that you could say are warning signs that our work might be or is becoming an idol in our lives. Uh, the first one is this, that our work is motivated through envy. The first thing the teacher warns us about is the temptation to envy. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. What the teacher sees here is that people in their ambition to work hard, to be successful, and to achieve are often motivated by envy. What is envy? Envy is a feeling of discontent or agitation that you feel that gets aroused in you when you see another person that is succeeding in doing good things that you would like to succeed and do good things in. It is when we become saddened by another person's good or fortune or excellence. That's envy, right? So it can take many different forms in the work context. Uh, we see another person's superiority or their excellence, and invariably what it makes us feel is somewhat inferior or that somehow we've been shortchanged, right? So you think about it, right? So a work colleague gets a promotion that you would hope to get, right? I mean, are you not going to feel a sense of like, man, I should have got that. I deserve that, right? Or, you know, you have a business and another, your competitor gets, your, gets the contract or they get the gig that you wanted to get and you feel shortchanged, and it's hard for you to be happy for them, their success makes you sorrowful. See, that's envy. Um, and what sometimes will happen, very often, in very, very subtle ways, is actually this motivates us to work even harder so that we can get that promotion or we can get that recognition. Um, even though it might have nothing to do with us, that person's success is not necessarily us necessarily being passed over. Sometimes we just take it as an injury. Um, St. Augustine called envy a diabolical sin. He called it a diabolical sin because it, it wishes for the destruction of the good. And what the teacher observes about envy is that it is a very, very powerful motivator when it comes to uh, working hard and advancing in your career and accomplishing great things. The passion and the ambition 
to be the greatest is you know, fueled by a sense of competition, right? Um, a lot of people are really motivated by competition. And if you're the kind of person and you think, I want to be the greatest at my job, or I want to have recognition at my work, you, you simply can't do that without always looking at what other people are doing that are right next to you doing the same thing, right? Uh, you see this motivation um, of, of accomplishing great things through envy on, on just full display in the world of professional sports, right? And, and that's really the storylines um, that inform all, that, that shape and inform all the games, right? You think, um, this, this past spring, uh, the documentary series from ESPN on the life of Michael Jordan came out called The Last Dance. And um, Michael Jordan's life is like a, an illustration of motivation and accomplishment through envy. Um, it's an excellent documentary. I highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, Michael Jordan, he's the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. Six NBA championships with the Bulls. Back-to-back um, -back threes with a time off for a year to play baseball, right? Um, but what came out of that that uh, series that was very interesting is that there were different times they chronicled um, in, in Jordan's NBA career where another player or another team would get a lot of attention or praise and people were talking about them. And then Jordan and the Bulls would play them. And Michael Jordan like made it his mission to completely destroy and obliterate the person in particular that was being praised. As if to say, oh, you think you're the greatest? Oh, you think you're good? People think you're good? I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna humiliate you. And he did that a lot, right? And you saw as you, I mean, it's really sad in many ways, because you see this is a man that is motivated deep at the core of his being to be the greatest in the world because of envy. All the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, you know, Michael Jordan is an extreme example of what the teacher means here. But to varying degrees, I think we all suffer from this. Now, I think it's important to remember that the teacher's perspective on life is limited, right? He, he doesn't make a qualification. He just says all toil and skill comes from envy. I don't think that's right. It's not the case that all hard work and all skill is rooted in envy. And I don't think that if you work hard and if you're accomplished in your career, that you, not, that you got there through envy necessarily. However, I think that more of us are motivated by envy than we realize in, in, very, in differing degrees and very subtle ways. And I think this is especially true that the more central your work is to your identity, the more envy is going to be... Uh, kind of looming in the background of your work. The higher up the social economic ladder you are, the more performance-based your vocation is. In other words, to, uh, to get ahead in your vocation, you have to perform and do really well. Uh, the more years of education that you have in order to have the job you get, the higher profile your work is within the world, the more envy is going to be a threat. <laughs> it's going to be there. Because the more your identity is going to be invested in your work and how well you do. See, envy is always going to be a temptation for, for if that describes your world. And the wisdom of the teacher is pretty stark. What he says is this. 
Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go there. Don't try to build your identity on your work. Don't try to get an identity from your work. For sure, right? Our work impacts our identities. That's, I mean, that's just part of life. It's okay. But you cannot build an identity on your work. You cannot get an identity from your work. This is vanity, a striving after the wind. Now, what is it, what's the alternative, right? Is the teacher, you know, you know, just saying just work less hard in life, just don't take work seriously, you know, slack off a little bit? No, he's not saying that at all. Look at the verse that comes right after the verse on envy. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, right? This is, this is a picture of the fool. Um, the picture of the fool uh, illustrates the destructiveness of laziness, the destructiveness of not working. Folding your hands and eating your own flesh is, is an illustration of laziness. See, we, uh, and, and self-cannibalism, right? it's a stark image. We were created for work. To refuse to work or to be lazy is the equivalent of being self-destructive. You know, if I were, you know, talking to, you know, um, youth group boys, I might say a, a bit more about laziness. <laughs> But laziness is a form of self-harm. That's really important. That is throughout the scriptures. Laziness is a form of self-harm. But the alternative to an envy-free work life is not, it's not laziness and it's not um, working less necessarily, but it is learning how to set the right boundaries in your relationship to work. That is what the teacher wants us to learn. It's learning how to set the right boundaries. Look on in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Now, what is he saying? What he's saying is this, is that when it comes to work, that a small handful of anything with a handful of rest is better than two handfuls of something awesome with no handful of rest and ceaseless toil. That's what he's saying. So better to have a job that is satisfying, but maybe not awesome, but that leaves you time to enjoy life, to enjoy your family and your friends and to rest a little, than to have your dream job, the best that you could be, but that you have no rest, no time off, no time for life, that you can enjoy it. See, wisdom in work is knowing how to set the right boundaries in our relationship to our work. It's knowing how to stop working. It's knowing how to say no. And um, again, the teacher's secret for joyful living here, I want to remind you of, what is the secret of joy according to the teacher? The secret of joy is learning to live within your limits as a creature. It's learning to set aside your godlike desires and ambitions of the world to give you something that it cannot. And when you embrace the limitations, when you embrace the frustrations and the unideal circumstances of your work, it's possible then to actually find a certain joy in it that you didn't think was possible because you kept thinking there was a better position somewhere else, right? <clears throat> One of the ways that 
We, uh, so the second point was learning to set boundaries on your work. So the first point was motivated by envy. That's how we know um, that our idols become a work, um, our work has become an idol. The second way that, that we know a warning sign that our work um, is becoming an idol is so we don't know how to set boundaries on our work. We have no sense of boundaries. And I know this is, this is hard, working from home these days. Um, So one of the ways that work becomes an idol in our life is that we're not able to stop working. We don't have any boundaries. Um, you think of, again, that, the passage of, of the carpenter, right? He eats and he sleeps and he drinks his carpentry. And then to the rest of it, he prays to it. And he says, deliver me for you are my God, right? He's given all of his attention to his work. And now he relates to his work as a God. And, and this, friends, is why I think Sabbath keeping is so important to learning how to keep boundaries in our life, right? The way that you learn to create boundaries in your, between, in your life and your work in a proper way is learning how to keep the Sabbath, because that's what the Sabbath is about. It's about keeping boundaries. Um, the Lord God commanded in, in um, the fourth commandment, he says, observe the Sabbath to keep it holy as, uh, as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. See, I think this is important. The command to, to, to rest, the command to this, take the Sabbath, in Deuteronomy in particular, is connected with Israel's bondage to slavery in Egypt. And that when God liberated them from Egypt, from their, their ceaseless toil and work under Pharaoh, they were led and allowed to rest. They were allowed to worship the Lord. See, to be, to not be able to stop working, friends, whether it's by your own choice or the choice of your employer, means you're a slave. If you cannot stop working, if you cannot rest, friends, you're a slave. Work has become an idol. And again, the teacher, he confronts us with... Um, he confronts us with the ways in which we expect more from work than they can deliver. And then what it ends up doing is taking more away from us. Now, again, I know this is really hard. This is a really challenging year for work and boundaries. Many of you, probably more than half of you, are working from home. There's something about having an office you go to where you can leave your work at home. But when you're working at home, there's, there's very little boundaries. All Home life and uh, family life and and work life get all mixed together, and that's hard. I realize that. Uh, we've experienced it at home ourselves. But that just means we need to, to fo we just need to pay closer attention to the boundaries. We've got to find out ways to keep those boundaries. So, but there's another um, warning that the that um, along these lines that the teacher wants us to be aware of. He raises a really important question for us, and the question is this: When it comes to your work. For whom are you working? For whom do you work? He's not asking about your employer who pays, your, who pays you, but for whom are you working? And he, he go, going on in verse 7, he says, Again, I saw the vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. See, the teacher imagines that 
he imagines this man that is so busy working that he doesn't have time for relationships or for other people. He gets incredibly rich, and he doesn't even think about the fact that he has nobody to share his riches and wealth with. He's so busy making money. Now, the underlying assumption here of this, this image um, that the teacher of this man is, is that we don't simply work for ourselves. We don't simply work for the enrichment of our own personal identities. We don't just work to put food on the table. We don't work for our fame or glory. Our work is only truly satisfying and joyful when it can be shared with others. That's the purpose of work. It's, it's only truly joyful and satisfying when it can be shared with others. When work is, enriches the network of relationships and community that we are closest with. And this leads to the third and final point that I think the, the final warning, if you will, that work is becoming an idol in our lives. <clears throat> and it's this. Um, work has become an idol in our lives when we prioritize our labor over our love. Work has become an idol in your life when you prioritize your labor over your love. Friends, <laughs> don't choose career over family. Don't sacrifice relational depth and community connection for more time in the office. And I'm not saying that there's never times when you have to, you know, work harder and not hang out with friends or not spend some time with your kids. Sometimes we don't have control. I realize that. Many times we do not have control over our schedules or the work that puts on our plate, and if we want to keep our job, we have to do our work. But when we do have control, when we can make decisions, we always have to work with this principle, which is my love has priority over my labor. My, lo my labors are ordered to my loves, not the other way around. You order your labor to your love. Again, this is, this is, not, um, <laughs> this is not the trend of modern life. Um, the trend is that we put off marriage, we put off having children, we put off settling down in community. In order to pursue our work or our career, and um, oftentimes people you know, when a, when a new job opportunity comes around, you know, oftentimes it's very easy for people to just move for a better career opportunity. And uh, what's secondary is what they're leaving behind in terms of relationships, friends, family, community. Again, now I realize that sometimes you have to move and you get a new job and you're, you don't have a choice or it's, it's really the best thing. I'm not saying you can never move to take another job. <laughs> But the fact is that so often in life, it's just like a great career opportunity comes along and we're like, man, I'm going to go. I'm going to move to a city. I don't know anybody. I don't have any family. And I leave it behind. I think this is deeply mistaken. Friends, the right time for meaningful relationships is when the opportunity arises. <laughs> True friendship, loving relationships, the possibility of marriage, they're gifts from God. They're gifts from God. Um, they're not like commodities on a shelf that you can just go and buy when you're ready. You're like, I think I'm ready to invest in a car now or a house. 
I think I'm ready to invest in a marriage or children right now as if they're just there for you to take when you're ready. The fact is, they might not be there. They might not be there when you're ready. See, the time for relationships is when the real opportunity is there. And again, I'm not saying that there are not seasons in our life when we're really focused on certain career preparations. That is a natural part of things. That's not what I'm saying. But the seasons of your life, not decades of your life, there is never a convenient time to get married. You'll never have enough money. There is never a convenient time to have children. You'll never have enough money, and you'll never be not busy enough. But I can guarantee you that you will never regret having children. <laughs> Except sometimes middle of the night. Um, but, I mean, you know, you will never regret relationships and love and prioritizing those things over labor. You will never, ever, ever regret that. And the single reason that we need to prioritize our love over our labor is because we draw our core identity from relationships. See, you only get an identity, a healthy one at least, from being loved and known by other people. That's how you become a self. It is the recognition of others who know you and who love you, and you know them. That's what it means to have an identity. The single most important identity-forming reality in all of our lives are those nurturing relationships. And it begins with our parents, our fathers, our mothers, our siblings. It develops with our friends and our community, our spouses, Lord willing, and the children we have. Those are the things that make us who we are. Those are the things that ground us and anchor us in life. And the reason envy becomes such a huge motivator for many successful people is that unconsciously, I think they crave relational recognition that being successful might bring to them. Ambitious people often think that what they want out of work is, you know, fame or wealth or recognition or power, but deep down what they really want is to be known and to be loved. And the idea that somehow if I can make it, people will love me. People will recognize me. All the while that you have all these relationships that are there, and people are there who are loving you, and you neglect them, right? It's very ironic. Friends, we don't, we don't work for ourselves. Our work fits within a relational context, an ecosystem. And, and when, it, when by God's grace, it it's something we enjoy and is able to provide it. It blesses and enriches those around us and ourselves. Work is a good thing. But again, when it gets out of balance, it can destroy the thing that's most precious to us, which are relationships. That's why the teacher goes on in this context to speak quite eloquently about the power and necessity of relationships. Look on verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down and they keep warm, how can one keep warm alone? And although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now you can be wildly successful in life, but if you are alone, what do you have? 
See, our need for loving relationships is not optional. God says in the beginning, it is not good for man to be alone. We were not created to be alone. We are built for relationships. And the teacher affirms this again and again throughout the book. Um, one more verse from chapter 9, which I've already read. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love and all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, don't think um, exclusively in terms of marriage here. You should expand this beyond marriage to friendship, friendships in the church, friendships, um, sibling relationships, parents. See, these are all gifts, that things that we should enjoy. These are portions. These are gifts that God gives us, an inheritance, and we shouldn't waste it. We shouldn't neglect it. See, the way to combat the idol of work, as I've already alluded to, is through cultivating the practice of Sabbath rest. See, when God created the universe, um, he designed the seventh day as a day of rest. Sabbath is built into the very fabric of creation itself. When God liberated the people of Israel out of Egypt, what he did is he gave them rest from their toil of slavery. Entering God's rest is the experience of salvation itself. Rest and salvation go together. So keeping the Sabbath is about letting God be God in our life. Keeping the Sabbath is about letting God be God in our life. It's about knowing when to stop and say, I can't do any more. And trust your God. You have to trust God with your work. It's about embracing our limits as creatures. So that's, that's why Sabbath is so important. It says you have to stop and rest. You're a creature. You need rest. You can't keep going on like this. Even God rested. Sabbath, um, Sabbath features quite prominently in the ministry of Jesus um, and his teaching, and many controversies are recorded in the Bible. One of them was our sacred reading from John chapter 5 of Jesus' ministry on the Sabbath and where he's accused of doing work on the Sabbath because he heals. But his accusers, and this is clear in that chapter of John 5, misunderstand the meaning of the Sabbath because they misunderstand who Jesus was. See, Jesus was no ordinary man. Jesus can work on the Sabbath because he is one with the Father. As Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and this is what's key, friends, about Sabbath. Sabbath is the time for us to rest so that God can be at work in us. This is so important. Sabbath is about us resting <laughs> so God can be working in us. Jesus says at the end of that text in John 5, my father is working until now and I am working. See, the Christian understanding of Sabbath is entering Jesus' rest because we can trust wholly in his perfect work. See, the reason we can rest in Jesus is because his work is perfect. His work is complete. It is not ceaseless toil. And it is something that through faith that we receive for ourselves. And, and so to enter into Jesus' rest, to practice a Sabbath piety is nothing less than turning away from all of our ceaseless toil and striving and turning to the perfect work of Jesus and letting it be that work that satisfies us. Jesus said, 
his very last words, it is finished. My work, which is your salvation and rest, it is finished. I have accomplished my work, and my work will endure forever. My toil has paid off. I have gained something. And through my death, I have achieved a surplus, not just for myself, but for all of those who look to me. Because my work is complete and perfect, you can be at rest. See, friends, that's what it means. That's part of Sabbath piety is looking to Jesus, resting in Jesus, and he gives liberation and rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for Jesus' finished work. Teach us what it means to grab hold of that work in our hearts and to rest in it, to allow us to rest from our own work and allow us joy in our own work. We give you thanks and praise for your word and for that you are working, Lord, um, in our lives, even when we uh, can't feel it or can't see it. And so let us enter your rest, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.